The Buddha was once asked by one of his disciples the question, would it be true to say that a part of our practice is for the development of loving kindness and compassion? And the Buddha answered, he said, no, it wouldn't be true to say that. He said it would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness and compassion. When I first heard this, it somewhat changed my perspective of meditation practice. I think it's a very pivotal statement because it really invites us to honestly explore what we aspire to not only in our meditation practice, but in our life, in all of our relationships. I think it's a question that asks us to look what it is that we feel that we are most deeply dedicated and committed to. We sense that the whole of our meditation practice is for the development of loving kindness and compassion, then in a way it invites us to explore all the different layers of our life, the way that we hold ourselves, the way that we relate to other people and to everything that comes into our world. The Buddha went on to say, he said, where there is goodness of heart, there is wisdom. And that where there is wisdom, there is goodness of heart. Loving-kindness clearly is not an intellectual leap or conviction just. It's not something we can talk ourselves into. For most of us, I think, to really develop a sense of loving-kindness in our life, a way of being in life where we can unconditionally receive the world with friendliness and with love, That's a shift that really requires for most of us a really deep inner transformation. A transformation that's born of insight, of understanding. When I first began to practice and teach, I used to think of loving kindness as a little bit like a small dessert you would have after the main course. You know, so I would teach uh, insight meditation and on the very last day, maybe for five minutes, you know, we'd do a loving kindness meditation. And it was just so, I sort of thought of it, it's a kind of a nice way to end a retreat. Until I began to do more intensive and sustained meta practice myself and actually realized that this whole separation between understanding and loving-kindness is pretty much a false duality. That first to really nurture and develop and live with loving-kindness actually re- really requires quite a depth of insight. And also for us to deepen in understanding, to deepen in wisdom, actually also requires quite a depth of loving-kindness. And more and more I come to see that it's a very sort of false duality 
As um, Stephen Mitchell put it, he said, the path of love and the path of insight lead to the same garden. A loving kindness really rests upon a very deep understanding of what is pain and what is suffering. And understanding too what is the end of pain and what is the end of suffering. Most of us, I think, don't need particularly convincing of the power of, the, of loving kindness. If we have ever, even once in our life, been on the receiving end of unconditional love, it would probably be a fairly pivotal experience for us. The times when we've been on the receiving end of anger and hatred and rejection and blame are also fairly pivotal experiences. So most in our life and in our practice we see that our in ourselves that our potential for hatred and our potential for love almost live side by side. Just as we see the potential for suffering and the potential to end suffering also live side by side. What happens in loving-kindness practice is that we make that commitment to ending suffering. We make a commitment to healing division and separation. It's a commitment of turning our hearts away from the pathways of anger and conflict and fear and blame. The pathways, it's a practice of turning our hearts and minds away from the pathways sometimes habitual pathways of mind that erode trust and compassion and understanding. You know, certainly my sense is that the greatest disease of our time and our world is the disease of separation, the disease of alienation between people, between communities, between cultures, between faiths. I think this question of separation is both a personal and a global issue. We see it in a microcosmic way, certainly in our own lives, when there's a separation or a division between I and you, between us and them that that separation and division is very rarely neutral. It's where mistrust and suspicion and hatred grows and lives. When we make a commitment to loving-kindness, to healing, it is in truth a commitment to understanding and releasing all of the places of division, all of the schisms that are part of our life. And that's not abstract. You know, that, that's a very real application. 
I mean, maybe there's a rare person here who could kind of cast their eyes and their mind over all of the, their relationships and the people in their lives and find that there's absolutely no one who they struggle with. For most of us, that's not the case. And it, it's quite easy to be abstract about loving-kindness and yet feel that it applies to everybody except the people that we're averse to. It's not so. That's where we're asked to practice. Loving-kindness practice is essentially altruistic. It's an altruistic practice because it is reaching for and cultivating the warmth, the forgiveness, the tenderness, the care that is possible for each of us. It's also seeking the ways to embody those qualities in every moment of our lives. It's an altruistic practice, but it's not idealistic. Because it's not taking upon ourselves some kind of mission, you know, that now I have to heal the world. Or now I have to feel nothing but friendliness and warmth. Or that now I do this, I'm going to end all conflict and division. If we had those kind of goals or those sort of demands, we would, of course, be immediately discouraged. We would not even begin. Loving-kindness practice is not that kind of idealism, but it is about how we can change and how we can transform our heart and mind of the moment. Because if we are able to change and transform our heart and mind of the moment, that in itself is often to change and transform our world of the moment. All the moments of irritation, of judgment, of disconnection, of impatience. Those are the moments that we look at, that we explore, where we can see the possibility of transformation within. A loving-kindness meditation was originally taught as an antidote to fear. It's one of those kind of romantic Buddhist stories that always have happy endings, you know, where a group of nuns and monks uh, who had gone to a forest to meditate and found themselves being harried by these groups of forest demons, you know, went running to the Buddha terrified and said, you know, I can't possibly practice here. You know, there are all these things, all these demons plaguing me. And the Buddha being the Buddha, you know, he didn't say, oh, sure, fine, you know, we'll just forget it, we'll go somewhere easier. Instead, he taught them loving-kindness meditation. And the monks and nuns went back to the forest, and lo and behold, practicing loving-kindness, including for the demons. Of course, all the demons turned into these willing servants who vowed to care for the monks and nuns forever. Most Buddhist stories have happy endings. But in the, the, the essence of it was really taught as an antidote to fear. That, to me, is quite powerful. It's discovering a way of being in our hearts and minds. 
which is also then to discover a way of acting and responding and speaking, which is not governed by fear. There's a wisdom in acknowledging the power of fear in our life and how its offspring of alienation and mistrust and anger are almost predictable. It's almost as if we could ask, like, where is there harm in this world without fear? Can we see anywhere in the world where there is harm, where there is not also fear? That just as genuine loving kindness is unconditional, our commitment to loving kindness must also be unconditional. And I think for many of us, this is something of a leap of faith. But we see that if we approach loving kindness and our commitment to it in a kind of ambivalent, half-hearted way, then the loving kindness we cultivate is also half-hearted and ambivalent. If we're inspired to offer loving kindness to those that we love and care for, but ambivalent, but, uh, but feel ambivalent or half-hearted about offering loving kindness to those we struggle with or people we dislike, then I think most, we see mostly that we leave the seeds of anger and the seeds of alienation mostly untouched. And the seeds of anger and alienation really grow in our unwillingness to pay attention to them. I've had a number of experiences over this last year, which I'm, I'm sure some of you have had too, you know, where I find myself listening to some of my less favorite politicians on television. And one day I was sitting there listening to an unnamed less favorite politician on television with my son, and, and he, said, he said to me, he said, Mom, what's the matter? I said, what do you mean, what's the matter? And he said, he said, look at what you're doing. And I mean, I was sitting there, and I had my jaw clenched, you know, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, you know it's obviously kind of just emanating this aversion. And I said to him, you know, I really see this as a really unwholesome mind state. It's unwholesome mind state. It, it's, it's painful. It's unpleasant to have this state of mind governing me in this moment. So I said, okay, I'm going to make a shift. I'm going to adopt this less than favorite unnamed politician as the benefactor in my meta practice. Not as my worst enemy, but as my benefactor. Because without him, I wouldn't actually be encouraged to, to find the levels of tolerance and forgiveness and generosity that I'm being asked to find. It's almost like the enemy becomes the benefactor because it pushes us to find something which seems impossible to us. And yet there is also faith in that because it doesn't produce immediate results. It's not just if I suddenly like this person or think they're terrific. It doesn't guarantee us an undisturbed life. And we also see that there is something amiss with the motivation to do that if we do it in order to make ourselves feel better. You know, can I feel that loving kindness in the face of the difficult? Not as a way of making myself feel better, because, but because this person, when we let go of the story, 
we see that they are worthy of tenderness, of care, of affection. Yesterday, before I came here, I was, um, I'd been asked to conduct a funeral for a 24-year-old man, local man, who died very suddenly. And there were quite a number of people at that funeral who'd really had a hard time with this young man. I mean, he, he wasn't, you know, a sunbeam in everybody's life. And yet they'd come to his funeral. And what struck me about it was that in that time, you know, in that ceremony, you know, there, there was all these people there, the people who'd loved this young man, and the people who'd really had a hard time with him, including his mother. But that somehow the story dropped. And that when the story dropped, that more essential sense of connectedness, of care, of loving kindness, was allowed to grow. Now, I'll talk later about some of the mixed feelings we have about dropping the story. Faith allows us to commit to things in our life. Faith in other people allows us to commit to other people. Faith in ourselves, confidence in ourselves, allows us to commit to ourselves. Faith in our practice allows us to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the practice. Now, faith does not mean religious, being religious, having a kind of religious belief or dogma. The word for faith in Buddhism translates more as confidence. To have confidence. We see if we don't have faith, we often hold back or resist our ambivalence. And I think it's very really hard for us sometimes to, to make that leap of confidence, to make that leap of faith, there's a, a story of Nazardin. Some of you are familiar with the Nazardin story. <coughs> Nazardin's house was on fire. So he ran up to his roof for safety. There he was, precariously perched on the roof. When his friends gathered in the street below, holding a stretched out blanket for him and shouting, Jump, Muller, jump. Oh no, I won't, said the Muna. I know, you fellows. If I jump, you'll pull the blanket away just to make a fool of me. Don't be silly, Muna. This isn't a joke. This is serious. Jump. No, said Nazidin. I don't trust any of you. Lay that blanket on the ground and I'll jump. <laughs> So this is sometimes how we approach our lives, how we approach our practice, you know? Lay it on the ground, prove it to me, and I'll jump. Without the guarantees, it is a leap of confidence and a leap of faith. But it's not a blind faith. You know, meditation practice, most journeys in our life ask for faith and confidence. But this is not a practice that asks for blind faith, but a faith that's really rooted in the wisdom of our own experience. We know 
what it feels like and it is like to live with anger and fear and conflict to fear someone or to have someone fear us we know what it is like and what it feels like to be hurt and to be wounded by the words and acts of another or to speak harshly to someone we know what it is like and feels like to have people in our life that we can't open to that we avoid or reject we know what it feels like to be rejected and judged by another it seems that so much ease and so much happiness in our hearts and lives really does rely upon our sense of ease in the world the ease of having no enemies we also see and this is part of where we find confidence in the practice we also see how the experiences of rage and anger really wound our planet fracture our relationships break our hearts Shantideva a great Indian teacher once said the mind does not find peace nor does it enjoy pleasure or joy nor does it find rest or courage when the thorn of hatred dwells in the heart in brief there is nothing that can make an angry person happy unruly beings are like space there's not enough time to overcome them uprooting these angry thoughts is like defeating all our enemies I think in our own experience we also know the relief that is born of being able to forgive someone who has harmed us or to be forgiven by someone we have harmed it's like at last breathing out after weeks, months, years of holding our breath we know what it feels like to be received with love and tenderness to be cared for the leaf of faith and loving kindness is born of being able to see the difference between the times when we can open and the times that we close the times that we can open and the times that we close when we see the difference between those two then we choose where we are going to make our home the faith and the confidence is also in the benefits of the practice that this practice really only has one direction which is freeing the heart of the closed and contracted places of fear and alienation it's so important to have confidence in the process we don't know what the effects of this practice is but there are no guarantees and no one truly knows but our faith and our confidence is in our, our own capacity in our own capacity to open to find the, the possibilities of unconditional warmth 
and friendliness. A heart without boundaries. Now, it sounds easy, but in truth, you know, this question of confidence, I think, is a very crucial one in our lives. Sometimes we have no confidence in the practice. Sometimes we have no confidence in ourselves. And I think especially for people who have, you know, like a long history in their life of, of feeling intolerant, feeling irritated, feeling annoyed, feeling resistant, there is often the belief that I have a long history, therefore all of this has a long future. But I think what loving-kindness practice does, really seeing we can change our heart and the mind of the moment, is seeing that just because something has a long history does not imply that it equally has a long future. When we do this practice, so where we cultivate the intention towards loving-kindness, it certainly doesn't mean that we never experience fear or anger. It's true that at times the world feels unsafe, that there are events and acts and people that unsettle us, that can harm us, that we probably meet people who seem to be blinded by self-centeredness or greed or, or rage. Fear and anger, if there is any goodness to be found within them. And we do experience fear and anger. And I think if there's any goodness to be found within them, it is that they have the power to startle us into a remarkable wakefulness. You know, if you think about any time in your life when you're really angry, like no one really has to nudge you and remind you to be present. You know, you're not in danger of nodding off, are you, or falling asleep. Times when we felt really afraid, it's the same. It is like these are energetically awake experiences. Our senses are alert, our minds are alert, our bodies are alert. Now, we can be lost within those highly wakeful states. But they, they are also moments when, in fear and anger, if they can be informed by loving kindness, that we are not lost at all. If we get lost in fear and anger, we often see how we get driven into really unskillful, harsh, harshness, striking out, resistance. And then, of course, we have all the consequences in terms of remorse and guilt. But wakefulness, the wakefulness of fear and anger, can also be a place where we begin to find the actions and the words and the choices of healing, where we can stay connected. There is a difference. Now, when we're really angry or afraid, we are very awake, we're very connected. But there's a very big difference between being connected and being imprisoned. And it is intention that makes the difference between them. 
We are imprisoned when we find ourselves lost in contractedness, being pushed ever deeper into a mind state of contractedness and closeness. There's no wisdom in it. If there is the intention of loving kindness, we see that it is possible not to be lost. This is hard. You know, if someone shouts at us, if someone's harsh to us, we can feel almost immediately how we're first really connected and then our connectedness turns almost immediately into being completely abandoning the person in front of us. You know, aversion, resistance, flight. We are connected and then to aversion the connectedness turns into abandonment. It's so quick. It's so quick. And look what happens in that situation. You know, suppose someone is harsh to us. They, they speak harshly. They act in a miserable way to us. Okay, so first we're really awake. You know, we feel really connected. We feel really awake. There's aversion, and so we abandon. We withdraw. Now, what happens when we withdraw? It's not letting go, is it? We're left with all the words, the, the memories, the echoes of that encounter playing in this endless loop in our own minds. And the sense of separation, the sense of alienation becomes more and more solid. Now what happens if we follow a different pathway? That if we follow the pathway of clear intention rather than the pathway of impulse and reaction. Then we sustain the connection and very often what we're letting go of is the habit of abandonment. The Buddha said, he said, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character so watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love if you think about the places where loving kindness is most needed it's in the places of conflict of separation of division maybe if you think of the places where loving kindness is usually most absent in those same places of conflict and separation and division. It takes actually a lot of courage to stay present in the face of, of anger, of rage. Most of us want to flee. You know, I heard this story, and you'll have to excuse it. I have to swear a little bit in this story because it, otherwise the story is not any good. Um, I heard somebody tell me this story about about this elderly man who, who went to church and he was listening to the sermon on Sunday. And the minister was talking about loving your enemies, forgiving your enemies. And this elderly man was sitting in the front row and he was looking really quizzical and, you know, puzzled as the sermon went on and on about loving your enemies. And he left at the end, and he came back the next Sunday. And before the minister began his sermon, 
he put up his, his hand and he said, Sir, sir, he said, I want to know what happens if you don't have any enemies? And the minister says, what do you mean? Uh, you know, he says, I don't have any, I mean, the minister says, you mean you don't have anyone in your life that you dislike, that you struggle with, you're in conflict with? And the other man piped up and he says, nope, the bastards are all dead. <laughs> we actually, you know, this is kind of like, this is sort of some kind of, we, we have this thought, you know, if they were all dead, you know, it'd be easy to have loving kindness, wouldn't it? be easy to have them in kind of they're all there. It's the live ones we struggle with. <laughs> and that's where it's so easy for us to say, you know, no, not here, not here. But what happens when we say not here? What happens when we say this I won't open to, this person I won't open to, this place of myself I won't open to? Then we accept disconnection, we accept separation into our life. You know, and I think it's much harder in truth to live with that separation than to turn towards the places where there is separation. The habits of aversion and abandonment, they're really all too easy for us to cultivate in our life. And yet we can imagine how it would be to be able to let them go. Now, loving-kindness in the face of conflict or, or mistrust or anger, it's not a feeling. We need to get very real about that. You know, no one's saying, okay, turn towards this person who's giving me a really hard time and feel terrific towards them. It's not a feeling. I mean, we need to be very realistic about that. But it is an intention. It's an intention to stay present rather than flinching or recoiling. It's also sensing the very deep painfulness of separation. And rather than being com contracted in the complexity of the story that divides us, we simplify. We say, may I be peaceful. May you be peaceful. May I be happy. May you be happy. In a way, we learn to release the blame. We learn to release the blame. Rick Fields once said, this is out beyond ideas of wrong and right. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the heart lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other, make no sense. Sometimes we have to let go of a lot to find that simplicity. And it's not easy. Because sometimes we think, well, if we let go of the story, if we let go of the blame, we're going to lose something important that we're we're going to become invisible or someone's going to get away with something or, you know, walk all over us. We see that just as anger and fear provoke wakefulness, they also evoke a very powerful sense of self and other. And that becomes a win-lose struggle. 
Dwelling in fear and anger can only grow. Dwelling in loving kindness and tolerance, they too grow and deepen. One of the hindrances to loving kindness is not anger, but our attachment to our anger. Our attachment to our views, to our opinions, to our rightness, to our superiority. We can see how easily we become self-righteous. In, uh, in the midst of anger, it's their fault. And sometimes, you know, aversion even can masquerade strangely as a kind of loving kindness. You know, we say, oh no, I'm not really averse to you, you know. I, I just really want to help you. I want to help you see what's wrong with you. You know, or, you know, we say, I don't do aversion, other people do aversion. I'm just pointing out what's wrong. And it's a kind of self-righteousness sometimes disguised as loving-kindness. Or sometimes the blame is not outwardly, sometimes the blame is inwardly. We think if we were better, more generous, more spiritual person, then we wouldn't feel this. Or other people wouldn't be unkind to us. I really so much sense that one of the first important steps in loving-kindness is to release the blame. It heals nothing. It just keeps us stuck in the endless cycles of pain and of disconnection. Sometimes the person who's hurt us, you know, has long moved on in their life. They're perfectly happy, you know. They're, they're off on their vacation somewhere enjoying themselves. <coughs> and we're still there, you know, seeding over what has already gone by. Thich Nhat Hanh once said that anger and hatred are the material from which hell is made. And that's not so difficult for us to see. Releasing the blame, it brings us back to a simpler place, that there is suffering and that there is the end of suffering. It doesn't mean that we accept or condone the unacceptable. It doesn't mean that we become passive in the face of injustice. But we do learn to release the agitation from our own hearts. When I lived in India for a while, I, you know, there was a time when I lived in India and I used to, five minutes I used to get hassled on the street a lot. Um, I used to get groped a lot and hustled a lot. And I used to be so furious uh, about it. And I went to my teacher, Manindraji, once, you know, and I said, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be so filled with loving kindness, and I'm filled with anger, you know, and what am I supposed to do about all of this? Should I just, you know, forgive and be tolerant and be patient? And, and he said, no, he says, with as much mindfulness and loving kindness as is possible for you, he said, hit them over the head with your umbrella. <laughs> And there's a kind of shift, you know. It's not about just saying, I should be like this. It is about learning to respond to what is in front of us, but to know our own hearts there. Are we truly trying to harm another? Are we trying to end harm? Are we trying to end hurtfulness? Loving-kindness, practicing it, 
it it does it's not actually a solution for pain and it doesn't guarantee that we're only going to have pleasant sensations and people in our life practicing loving kindness we still meet the difficult we still meet people in our lives that are hard to be with our bodies still age things still fall apart at times but I think what loving kindness really teaches us is not to flee is not to abandon anything it is fleeing that makes life seem impossible loving kindness teaches us the possibility within the impossible about learning to stay connected in places that feel impenetrable I think when we practice develop loving kindness here and elsewhere in our life it's kind of look at the places where our sense of inner balance where our sense of equanimity just disappear just where do they disappear where do we find ourselves leaning into aversion, resistance and blame and can we come back you know sometimes we think oh yes well you know my loving kindness disappears in those places where you know I, with the people I'm most in conflict with but the fact is for most of us in our life there are a thousand and one moments that hold the potential for a loss of balance you know it's not just the dramatic con- conflicts it's, it's you know it's that person who calls you up the tenth time wanting to sell you windows what do you do with that person it's interesting isn't it? what do you do with that person what do you do with that person who kind of you know honks their horn at you in the traffic you know, what do you do with that person who just doesn't kind of be who you want them to be it's easy to fall out of balance and that's where we're asked to stay connected where we say this too this too learning to change our heart of the moment and changing our world at the moment there's a story of mm, I came across of an old rabbi who's very famous for his wisdom coming to visit a small village and the clever young resident rabbi saw this as a great opportunity to show off to the villagers how smart he was and to kind of prove himself so he devised a test for the old rabbi the master was going to speak to the villagers and at the right moment in the middle of the gathering the young man would approach with a tiny bird in his hand and asked the question Rabbi, I have a bird in my hand can you tell me if it's alive or dead this was a win-win situation for the young to be master because if the old rabbi had answered the bird is alive the young man could crush the bird in his hand and hold it out for all to see proving that the old man was wrong but if the old rabbi replied the bird is dead he would just open his hand and let the bird fly away again demolishing the old rabbi the day came and the young man approached the rabbi with his question 
Rabbi, you're so clever and so wise. Can you tell me if the bird in my hand is alive or dead? The rabbi was silent for a moment. Then with tenderness, he looked at the young man and gently replied, It's up to you, my friend. It's up to you. I mean, this is so true for us that the key really for healing conflict, alienation struggle, is also in our hands. And each time we meet the difficult and the painful with loving kindness, it's as if we're creating one last moment of fear in our world. One last act of judgment. One last instance of bringing harm to ourselves or others. Loving kindness in that it's, it's not a state or a noun or a place, but it's a way of responsiveness of meeting the moment, of lessening the mountain of suffering. It's not complicated. We just keep coming back to that place of intention and connectedness. May I be peaceful. May you be peaceful. May I live with ease. May you live with ease. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.